From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. The verdict is in. Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all charges. That shouldn't be a surprise if you actually watched the trial, but it would be a surprise if you believe the outrageous arguments of the prosecution. Nearly everything they said in this trial was a lie, exaggeration, or deception. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and in this special podcast, we're going to examine just how outlandish the prosecutor's arguments really were. Here are the basic events at the heart of this trial. In August of 2020, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse goes to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where a Black Lives Matter protest has devolved into a riot. Rittenhouse has an AR-15. He is physically assaulted by multiple assailants, and he shoots three people, two of whom died. He is arrested and charged with multiple counts of murder. Rittenhouse claims self-defense. On Friday, November 19, 2021, a jury returned a not guilty verdict on all counts. This case has riveted the nation mostly because it became yet another skirmish in an ongoing cultural war, particularly the war over gun rights. But I was riveted to this case for another reason, the blatant lies and misrepresentations by prosecutors and the media to paint Kyle Rittenhouse as a militia member, white supremacist, and cold-hearted murderer. I want to play a few audio clips from the trial to show just how far prosecutors were willing to go to put a teenager in prison for life. First up, a canard about self-defense. The prosecutor claims you can't shoot an unarmed man. Listen to this clip. Now, the defense wants you to think Joseph Rosenbaum was there to attack the defendant. We'll never know what Joseph Rosenbaum was thinking, because the defendant killed him. So we're just guessing. But let's assume for a minute, yeah, Joseph Rosenbaum is chasing after the defendant because he wants to do some physical harm to him. He's an unarmed man. This is a bar fight. This is a fist fight. This is a fight that maybe many of you have been involved in. Two people, hand to hand, we're throwing punches, we're pushing, we're shoving, we're whatever. But what you don't do is you don't bring a gun to a fist fight. (coughs) What the defendant wants you to believe is that because he's the one who brought the gun, he gets to kill. So I want you to contrast this, two different scenarios. One scenario where there's two guys who are throwing punches at one another like a bar fight. I think we'd all agree you can't kill someone. You can't punch the guy, knock him to the ground, and then get on him and strangle the life out of him. That's murder. So what's the difference here? The only difference is the defendant brought a gun. He brought his AR-15. That's why 
he's got to come up with this cockamamie theory that Joseph Rosenbaum was not only going to take the gun, but take it and then turn it on the defendant. And the defendant actually told you that he thought Joseph Rosenbaum was going to take that gun and not only kill him, but kill other people, which is really ironic considering the defendant is the one who killed people in this case and the only one. But putting that aside, they have to convince you that Joseph Rosenbaum was going to take that gun and use it on the defendant because they know you can't claim self-defense against an unarmed man like this. You lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun, when you're the one creating the danger, when you're the one provoking other people. Did you hear that? The prosecutor says, quote, you can't claim self-defense against an unarmed man. Then he doubles down and says, quote, you lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun. Fortunately for Rittenhouse, nearly everything that happened was caught on video, and the video shows him being chased and physically assaulted. It shows him being kicked in the head. It shows someone swinging a skateboard at his head. That could have killed him. That could have broken his neck or cracked his skull. And the idea that hands and feet are not deadly weapons is just wrong. The FBI Uniform Crime Report shows that in 2020, rifles of all types were reported to have been used in 454 murders. Personal weapons, which the FBI defines as hands, fists, feet, and even pushing someone, accounted for 657 murders. The prosecutor claims that having a gun is provocation. He says that if you have a gun, you are the one creating the danger. So, guns are bad. People with guns are bad. Having a gun makes you guilty. That's the argument. It's not only misleading, it's a lie. Why? What's behind this argument? Let me play you another clip that shows where this line of thinking comes from. These minor injuries we've heard the defendant have, again, Mr. Richards misstated the standard. It is not could have caused great bodily harm or death. It is not likely to have caused great bodily harm or death. It is imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. Where is that when you get a couple scrapes? Everybody takes a beating sometimes, right? Sometimes you get in a, a scuffle and maybe you do get hurt a little bit. That doesn't mean you get to start plugging people with your full metal jacket AR-15 rounds and no bullets are not bullets. And we heard testimony about that. Everybody takes a beating sometimes. That's what the prosecution believes is the right response to being attacked. Just suck it up and take your beating. Because the assumption is that properly defending yourself, especially if it involves a firearm, might hurt the attacker. So the rights of the attacker are more important than your rights. Being a victim is righteous. Refusing to be a victim is a sin. You see how that works? That's the underlying belief for the hatred of guns used for self-defense. This may also be what's behind cities standing down in 2020 and letting rioters loot, burn, and destroy. Don't send in police. 
Don't protect your home or business. Don't protect yourself. Take your beating and don't take the chance of hurting someone, even if they're hurting you. It's madness. The next clip is an old prosecution tactic, and it involves the argument that multiple shots are wrong, that you should fire just once or be able to know the exact number of shots to fire and never fire more than that magic number. Listen. Dr. Kelly has testified that the first shot that the defendant fired at Joseph Rosenbaum hit the victim in the right pelvis, fracturing it. Mr. Rosenbaum was incapacitated at that point. He is, whatever threat he might have posed, it's over. There is no further threat. He is falling to the ground, and the defendant doesn't stop after that first shot. He tracks Mr. Rosenbaum's body all the way down, firing three more shots. A second shot, which goes through Mr. Rosenbaum's hand, and then a third and fourth shot, one that grazes the right scalp, and one that goes right into Mr. Rosenbaum's back. And that is the kill shot. That is the one that took Mr. Rosenbaum's life. There is no evidence that Mr. Rosenbaum was reaching for the defendant's gun. And after that first shot, there's no way Mr. Rosenbaum could have taken that gun even if he wanted to. He is already falling to the ground. He is helpless. He is vulnerable. And as I said, the kill shot is the one to the back. The prosecution is talking about the first person Kyle Rittenhouse shot. He's chasing Rittenhouse through a car lot. Rittenhouse turns, sees this attacker, and fires four shots. And the prosecution argues that four shots were too many. Why? Because according to the autopsy, the first shot fractured the attacker's pelvis and rendered him incapacitated. So, the prosecution reasons, the threat is instantly over and the next three shots are not justified. Also note that the prosecution says the attacker was shot in the back and that was the kill shot. In other words, Rittenhouse should have instantly known to stop at one shot. He should have had as much information in a split second as the medical examiner had after a complete autopsy. Rittenhouse should have known about the broken pelvis and stopped shooting. And of course, shooting someone in the back is always bad. We know this from westerns and TV shows, right? This is preposterous. The prosecutor says Rittenhouse tracked the attacker all the way to the ground, shooting three more times. But that's exactly what self-defense instructors will teach you. You shoot until the threat is stopped, and you know the threat is stopped when the attacker is on the ground. I've had instructors specifically tell me, shoot your attacker to the ground. It's not like in the movies, where all it takes is one shot. In real life, an attacker can be shot multiple times and keep attacking. So, yeah, if you're in fear of death or great bodily harm, you shoot your attacker to the ground. The prosecutor's argument is entirely ignorant of realistic self-defense. And here's another argument based on ignorance. This one deals with how close an attacker needs to be before you can justifiably shoot. So what we have right here on the screen, this is Exhibit 84, and this is the middle portion of that incident. And you can see Mr. Rosenbaum 
chasing after the defendant, throwing that plastic bag, and then the defendant turns and points the gun back at Mr. Rosenbaum. And this is the moment in time when Mr. Rosenbaum essentially does sort of a little hop with both of his hands in the air. And the defendant has testified. He saw at that moment that there was nothing in the defendant's hand, or in Mr. Rosenbaum's hands. He was unarmed. There's the defendant turning and pointing the gun. Mr. Rosenbaum leaps, his hands out to the air, and then watch here at the end. This is where the shooting occurs. Mr. Rosenbaum is not even within arm's reach when the first shot occurs. I'll play that again. The defendant is pointing the gun at Mr. Rosenbaum. Mr. Rosenbaum raises his arms off to the side. The defendant approaches these cars and slows down and then turns and shoots Mr. Rosenbaum. Once again, the prosecution is talking about the attacker being unarmed, but the main point is that he is not within arm's reach when he's hit with the first shot. The prosecution makes a big deal about this, as if when an attacker isn't right on top of you, you're not in danger. But if you've ever taken an advanced self-defense class, you've probably seen a demonstration of the Tooler drill. This is an exercise to show just how fast someone can come at you for an attack compared to the time it takes you to respond with a firearm. The Tooler drill shows that someone at about 21 feet can close that distance in about 1.5 seconds, which is about how long it takes the average person to get off one accurate shot. So if anyone is within a 21-foot radius, you can reasonably assume they are close enough to pose a lethal threat if you believe that is their intent. This is a well-established principle taught to police, military, and civilians. And again, one shot may not stop an attacker before they can hurt you. So even 21 feet is very close in a lethal force situation. But the prosecution doesn't stop with all of these absurd arguments. Because they're desperate for a conviction, they take it up a few notches and actually argue that not only is Kyle Rittenhouse a murderer, the attackers are heroes. I'm serious. Listen for yourself. Jason Lukowski, he lies to. The crowd, he lies to. Gage Grosskreutz, he lies to. So at this point, the crowd is dealing with what they perceive to be an active shooter. Someone who has just shot someone, who is still in possession of the gun, who is fleeing the scene, and how are we supposed to know where he's going next? You know, all night that night, the crowd has been hearing the sound of gunshots, they've been hearing fireworks, firecrackers, but now someone actually has been shot. The crowd sees the defendant running with a gun. He's lying to them. He still has the gun. He's shot someone. This is provocation to them. This is someone who has committed a criminal act and is putting people in danger. It is entirely reasonable for that crowd to believe at that moment that he is a threat to kill again. The defendant could have made it unequivocally clear what he was doing. He could have stayed at Mr. Rosenbaum's body, helped protect him, helped preserve his life, call 911. As he's running, he could have announced to the crowd exactly what he was doing. 
told them. He could have fired warning shots to try and tell, keep him away. He could have dropped the gun. He could have raised his hands and surrendered. He could have signaled to this crowd that he did not pose a threat anymore. But everything he does is indicative of someone who is still a threat. Now, the defendant is going to tell you he wasn't. But from the crowd's perspective, how are they supposed to know any different? He does nothing to demonstrate to the crowd that he isn't a threat to kill again. And it turns out he does. It turns out within a few seconds, he does kill again. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that in this situation, the crowd has the right to try and stop an active shooter. They have a right to protect themselves. The defendant is not the only one in the world who has the right to self-defense. But what does the crowd do to try and stop the defendant? I submit to you, and this is not a criticism of them, but they use almost the least minimal, least intrusive means possible. They could have used deadly force against him. They could have shot at him. But instead, somebody comes up behind him and knocks his hat off. Anthony Huber comes up with a skateboard and the defendant blocks it with his arm. And then the defendant falls to the ground on his own. No one knocked him down. This man that the defense wants to call jump kick man, he's got no weapons, no gun, no knife, no nothing, comes in and tries to kick the defendant in the face. Anthony Huber comes back and tries to grab the gun, actually does grab the defendant's gun, and tries to pull it away because he's trying to disarm an active shooter. And Gage Grosskreutz comes running in, stops with his hands up in the air until he sees and hears the defendant adjusting his weapon as if preparing to fry, fire again. And then what does Gage Grosskreutz do? He reaches for the gun to try and disarm the defendant. Gage Grosskreutz had his own gun in his own hand. He could have aimed it and fired at the defendant, but he did not. And you heard Gage Grosskreutz testify about that, about how that is a decision that he was not prepared to make at that point in time. He is not the type of person who is just willing to take someone's life in an instant, unlike the defendant, who took two lives that night, very quickly and seemingly very easily. The prosecutor blatantly lies and calls Rittenhouse an active shooter, and he does this to argue that the mob who attacks the teenager after the first shooting are acting reasonably to stop a threat. The prosecutor says the crowd has a right to attack Rittenhouse. They're justified to hit him in the head with a skateboard, justified to kick him in the face when he's on the ground, justified to charge him with a gun in hand. And elsewhere in the trial, the prosecutor specifically uses the word hero, saying all the attackers are heroes, valiantly attempting to stop what they perceive to be an active shooter on a rampage. If any juror had been buying the prosecution's arguments up to this point, this may have been the moment when the prosecutor lost them. No sane person could watch video of multiple rioters taking turns attacking Rittenhouse and see them as heroes. They were just unhinged thugs assaulting a 17-year-old. Now, I've played just five short clips 
from days of proceedings in the Rittenhouse trial. These clips reveal just a fraction of the lies and deceptive arguments waged against the defendant. And while I've seen prosecutors and defense attorneys lie in court, I've never seen a trial like this before. A trial where nearly every word from the prosecution's mouth was so utterly devoid of facts and so overwhelmingly false and misleading. Not only did the prosecution lie about the evidence, they falsified evidence, withheld evidence, misrepresented the law, violated court protocols, infringed the defendant's constitutional rights, and addressed the jury and the judge with disrespect and condescension. And let's not forget the moment the lead prosecutor pointed the AR-15 at people in the courtroom with his finger on the trigger, reminding us that the prosecution is lecturing us all about the danger of guns while knowing nothing about them. And the media was in on it. They also lied, informing the world before the trial had even begun that a 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was not just guilty of murder, but was a white supremacist vigilante monster. MSNBC even hired a producer who followed the jurors outside the courtroom. This trial and the media coverage was a travesty and an embarrassment. Facts matter. And in the end, here are the facts. Kyle Rittenhouse violated no law. He was violently attacked by multiple assailants, and he used a firearm to successfully defend himself. The real heroes in all this? The jury. They were not sequestered. They knew how volatile this case was. They knew they could face a violent reaction if they didn't deliver a guilty verdict. But they did their civic duty, examined the evidence, and delivered a verdict based on facts. So what have we learned from this case? Did we learn that people have a right to defend themselves when violently attacked? Did we learn that if you don't want to get shot, you shouldn't physically assault people? Did we learn that a trial is about facts, evidence, and law, not about feelings and ideology? Did we learn that many in the media are interested in profiting from controversy and chaos and not in dispassionately reporting news? Did we learn that protesting and rioting are not the same thing? Did we learn that we cannot allow mob rule and order police to stand down when cities burn and rioters wreck havoc? I wish I could say yes to all of these questions, but I can't. Because I'm not sure anyone learned anything. And that is a damned shame. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.